Hey, what's going on? Thanks for checking out Blissful Prospecting. My name is Jason Bay. You can call me J-Bay. And this podcast is for sales reps and sales leaders who love landing big meetings with their prospects, but hate spending a bunch of time figuring out who they're going to reach out to and then spending a bunch of time writing that cold email and the prospect never responds. So if that's something that's ever happened to you before, you're definitely in the right place. And today we're talking to my good friend, Jeff Bajoric in another episode of Sales Rants. super excited for this episode. So this is another one if you're listening to for the first time, uh, these sales rants, I typically do a couple of these per month with my friend, Jeff Bajoric. He's got a podcast called The Why and the Buy, which I definitely recommend that you check out. It's one of my favorite sales podcasts. And he's got a website at jeffbajoric.com as well. So he's got a sales community over there. So if you're into rethinking the way that you sell and not being a sleazy or salesy sales professional, definitely check out his stuff at jeffbajoric.com. But today we're ranting on a couple of things. One, mastery. So there's this kind of thinking and Bilal Batrawi, who's been on the podcast before and is a good friend, he's kind of talked about this as well. You know, in a lot of trades, you spend time learning from people that are masters, right? So my dad is an electrician. There's a whole apprenticeship program to become an electrician where you learn under someone that's been doing it longer than you. And we talk about this in sales. So what does it take to achieve mastery? And where do you find people to learn from? We talked too about toxic positivity. I'm not going to share too much about that one. That's kind of a fun topic to talk about. I think there's way too much positivity out there right now. And I'm not saying that we should be negative. I'm in no way saying that. But I think there's a lot of fake positivity. People pretending that things are going really well when they're really not. We talk about mediocrity. And this last one, it's a quote from Michael Port, who wrote a book called Book Yourself Solid. Really great book. He talks about business problems being personal problems in disguise. So when you think about all the challenges that you have had in your professional life as a sales professional or a sales leader, how does that translate into like your personal life? And really, it's the question should be, how does the challenges that you have in your personal life with your relationships and dealing with people and friends and just acquaintances, you know, how does that manifest itself in your business life? And it's, it's pretty interesting, actually, when you look at the correlation. So we're going to be talking about those four topics before we get to the episode today. What I would love from you is a short, honest review on iTunes of what you think about the podcast. If you're listening to this, odds are it probably isn't for the first time for most of you. For some of you, it is. But I'd love to continue getting more folks exactly like you listening to this podcast, especially if you find value from it. And it definitely helps us grow our audience as well. So it's a little bit of a selfish ask as well. But I would love to continue pumping out great content for folks like you and reviews help us do that. So if you go to the podcast app on your iPhone or to iTunes, search for Blissful Prospecting, scroll down to the bottom, leave a short, honest review. I would really, really appreciate it. It would mean a lot to me. And let's get to the episode with Jeff today. So it's funny because I was actually talking to Bilal Batrawi, who if you haven't met, we, I got to introduce you to you. You really like him. We were talking about this concept of mastery. And he, what he always talks about is how there's no apprenticeship in sales. And like one of the best ways to learn sales is to like basically ride shotgun with someone that's like a master of the craft. You know what I mean? Yeah. But this path to mastery, you had a story from an interaction you had with Victor Antonio. Maybe you want to give some context there. And, and how does this relate to mastery and kind of what we're talking about? 
So it's interesting. I want to take that on that, that whole, there's no apprenticeship in sales because there should be. And it's called having a good manager yeah. and a good leader and a mentor, right? There is an apprenticeship in sales. So if you're listening to this right now, here it is. If you're listening to this, if you're watching this right now and you want an apprenticeship in sales, send me an email, jb at jeffbajoric.com. I'm putting together a mentorship program and I want you to be a part of it. jb at jeffbajoric.com. Send me the message. We'll get that taken care of. Okay, cool. I had a good leader. I had someone, but I didn't get a good leader until I was almost a year into sales. And so I know how rare they really are. They're way more rare than they should be. But you can get an apprenticeship there. And I'll get to the point about Victor in a minute, because someone has to show you what you're looking for. Someone has to give you the context for why stuff matters. Someone has to help you know where your development is and where your next steps are. And that is the role of a frontline manager. It's one of the biggest ones. And it's one of the first things that gets taken away from them. So I was talking to Victor. Here's my transition all the way back. And I was talking to Victor for his podcast, the Sales Influence Podcast. He and I have interacted just a little bit over the last year or so because we're both speaking at Outbound together. And that's what put us in the same circle as one another. And I just remember talking to him and recording for the podcast. And he said, Jeff, I really liked when you went here and when you went here, when you went here, those are really good points, man. Some people don't get that stuff. And I said, Victor, you know what I love about you is that when I say stuff like that on other podcasts, someone with only a handful of years of experience would say on behalf of their audience, what do you mean by that? Can you tell us a little bit more? Kind of, you know, ask some clarifying questions. I said, Victor, you were right in lockstep with me. And then you took it to another level of context. And then we could take our conversation even higher. That is so cool to be able to talk with someone who really, really gets it. And you and I were talking before we hit record. I mean, look at his LinkedIn. I'm not intentionally aging the guy, but he's got 30 plus years of selling experience, more than double both you and I. Actually, he's got the same amount of experience as you and I put together, Yeah. okay? And you made a great point. You said, imagine what we'll be like if we just keep doing this. And you also pointed out that, you know, since we've known each other, we've kind of watched each other kind of grow. And there's another way I want to point this out. Not only is it time, but it's a matter in getting back to that apprenticeship kind of thing. Jason, you push me to be better because I watch what you do and I see what you make possible for people and I see the way you do it. And then we talk and you're like, hey, here's what I'm working on. And I show you what I'm working on. And I think there's something here, not just of time invested and time spent honing your craft, but the people you surround yourself with and whether or not they're pushing you or whether or not they're at least inspiring you if they're not pushing you. Yeah. Oh man, where do we take that? There's so many <laughs> different angles there. I think one lesson from this, the stuff that comes to mind for me is like being patient in your career. You know, if we use the 10,000 hour rule, you know, Malcolm Gladwell had a lot to say, you know, regardless of the number, let's just use 10,000. Sure. Like think of like how many years you need to be selling to actually put in 10,000 hours of selling. Right. So don't include Salesforce task and that stuff. Include the preparation for the sales call, the actual call itself, the follow-up, all that other stuff. I mean, you're looking at the better part of a decade, man, you know, to be able to get those kind of hours in. So I think one thing that comes to mind for me is really being patient and as weird as it sounds and cheesy as it sounds, like really finding a way to think of it like getting into shape or honing like a skill in a sport and just like really giving yourself some patience and compassion and be like, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Let me learn how to enjoy this process of getting better at it. Yeah. I think that we can, with LinkedIn, it's starting to become a lot like Facebook and Instagram and that you see all of these salespeople posting all of these things. And you think that 
oh, wow, they've only been doing it for two years and they have this huge following on LinkedIn and what they post gets a lot of traction and all this other stuff. Well, you know what? Most of those people aren't doing as well as you would think. No different than in the business world. You know, like they're putting in their hours. They just happen to be documenting and sharing it. Right. It's not just the patience and it's not just the time. You're right. It's the pursuit, but it's also the dedicated practice. That 10,000 hour rule relies on dedicated practice. Yep. And you can't replace time. My, the guy that hired me, I was upset. I was six months into my gig. He hired me in my first uh, sales gig and, and I was frustrated after six months. And I said, Ken, I just feel like I should get this a little bit more. He says, hold on a second. How long did it take you to get your degree? I said, four years. So then you graduated and then you went to work in your field, your skilled profession field, right? He said, yeah. And how'd you feel about that? How much mastery you feel like you had? And I said, well, not a whole lot, but I learned a little bit as I, yeah. He's like, and you think you're going to be a great salesman in six months. <laughs> and I said, okay, all right. And then I think about that from his point. Oh, I'm calling him out. Like, I'm so great that I should be able to master. He's honed a craft. He's honed over 20 years at that point, over 20 years. I'm supposed to pick it up in six months. I think so much of the impatience comes from a lack of perspective of what we're actually trying to do here. Yeah. This is not just a skill that you can read in a textbook and then you know how to do that thing. It's not a Lego model instruction book like I put together with my kids, you know, that okay, one piece after another. It doesn't work like that. You need to understand what you're trying to do. You need to have a realistic expectation for how long it's going to take. And it's way more than you think because dedicated practice an hour of dedicated practice is different from just spending an hour to hit that 10,000 hour rule. I have one last thought on that because this is, again, such a big topic. It's like the dedicated practice is every sales call you do. I think like what you could tactically focus on is, hey, this week, I'm going to cut the number of sales calls in half that I do where I just wing it in the sales call. And I don't intentionally try something new or try to improve existing skill sets. Yep. It's too easy to just get in the mode of like, oh, it's like driving a car and I just do it mindlessly. Don't even think about it. Like try to cut the number of sales calls in half where you aren't working on anything and be intentional about it. You know, what's also startling is um, go ahead and look at your last couple of weeks and measure on your calendar how much time you actually spent either preparing for a customer or in front of a customer or, yeah, okay, prospecting, right? Like entering stuff into Salesforce? Nope. Going to the staff meeting? Nope. Water cooler talk? Nope. You know, just logging onto Zoom or all those time spent in between your Zoom meetings or whatever? Nope. It is startling how much 10,000 hours actually is. It's probably closer to 15 years, Jason, for most people. Yep. Cool. Next topic. All right. There's a lot of talk about toxicity. We've been through Me Too and toxic masculinity. We've talked about all these other social issues. We don't really talk so much about them, but we're aware of them. So toxic is one of those kind of buzzwords. Like it's an emotional word, right? Let's talk about toxic positivity, which sounds like an oxymoron to me. Because how could something positive, something good, also be toxic at the same time? But you know, we've hit on this before when it comes to real empathy as we've chatted through that. Empathy is not the same as thinking positively. Actually, of course, it's not the same as thinking positively. But what I'm trying to think about is like when you meet someone or you run into someone that you know, and they're just not having a great day, and you just say, be positive. Like, I think positivity becomes toxic when being positive is just the blanket answer to every problem that you have, right? No, I don't want to look at the bright side. I don't care about your silver lining. Leave me alone, right? So like, 
we actually got onto this topic because of some comments that someone else left on one of our earlier video posts, which is really cool. Like this is seriously meta, Jason. So like, I'm just gonna throw it to you. Toxic positivity, where is the line drawn when you're really trying to make someone cheer up, but they don't feel that you mean it? Yeah, okay, that last part you said, feel that you mean it. I think that's a really big piece. And I'm actually gonna take this a different way than I thought that I was. (laughs) Because if you're trying to help someone, what purpose are you doing that for? And I'll give you an example. If my wife is feeling really anxious about something, maybe it's our personal finances or saving or whatever, right? And I catch myself helping because I'm trying to reduce her anxiety so I feel less anxious. Mm. That's kind of a weird way to help someone. That's a really selfish and not in a bad way of helping someone. What she always calls me out on is, well, hey, are you doing that for yourself? Are you actually trying to help me? So when we say be positive, I think where the toxic positivity can come from, especially as a sales leader, to your sales team is, are you doing this because it makes you feel really good to say that? Does it make you feel really good to say, be positive and to shut down negativity? And because where this is going, it's going completely overboard into people can't even say things like, hey, that sequence that you spent a lot of time creating, Jeff, it's not working. No, we don't need any negativity, Jason. No, no. What solution are you bringing to fix this? I want solutions, not problems. It's like, okay, now you're creating an environment where people don't feel comfortable like giving you feedback, Uh, which is the worst place to be in as a leader where your team doesn't feel comfortable giving you feedback. So I think if you make it more about the other person, what does this person need and what's the best way to really get this message through to them? I think you're going to find that being positive is not the most effective way to get through to like 80 plus percent people don't, don't want to hear that. doesn't work for them. So let's go further on that thread then. And this is not what we talked about when we (laughs) set this up. Is there a difference then between be positive and act positive? Ooh. What if positive is just who you are? What if you can't help but look at the bright side? What if you can't help but see the opportunity in every obstacle? I think the biggest issue that most people have is that this toxic positivity isn't genuine. It's not authentic. It just feels like that thing people are supposed to say. And then to your point, anything other than that is no longer tolerated in this organization. We will have none of that here, right? Like, yeah. Now you can't actually get work done because you're afraid of how to frame the way that you talk about it. Like, I think that becomes really impactful in the wrong way. What I think, what I hope certainly that we've established is that <laughs> don't just say a nice thing for the sake of saying a nice thing, right? Yeah. The blanket answer can't be like, just be positive about it. If you come to me and I tell you, give you bad news. You're like, oh, that's okay, man. Just be positive. Look at the bright side. Like, I'm going to want to slap you sometimes because- that doesn't respond to me or recognize my issue at all. There's zero empathy in that. Yeah. Right. Is that what it comes down to? Is it come down to authenticity and empathy or is it more than that? I think it's exactly that. It's people, we have an inherent need to feel understood because if we don't feel understood, that makes us feel like an outcast and being an outcast is not good. I mean, that's just programmed in our DNA through <laughs> tens of thousands of years of evolution. Sure. So when you say be positive, what I hear from that is, oh, this person doesn't really understand what I'm going through or what I'm going through is this thing that kind of bums me out and makes me feel sad. Is like, it's not okay for me to feel that way. And anytime you're a parent, you know much more about this than I do. But I believe anytime you tell someone what they should and shouldn't feel, you're starting to get into a mode where Dude, people can't help their feelings. Like if something makes someone sad, they can't help that. Like it's actually better to just acknowledge it and like feel it than it is to like try to push it away. And people are going to feel it. Like you should be allowed to feel your feelings. 
You talk about your wife all the time. I'll mention my wife. And this is one of the things that she's told me. We've known each other for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> She'll say all the time. She'll say, Jeff, I don't need a solution. I just want to be heard. Yeah. And if you don't get that, I just want to be heard, right? If the person doesn't feel heard, it doesn't matter what you say. I think that's the kicker here for sure. You'd love it. Cool. All right. Next topic. Mediocrity. <sighs> so I think you see this a lot in uh, social media, especially and LinkedIn kind of happens to be the social media of choice for most salespeople these days in terms of sharing stuff. But you kind of have this thing, this mediocrity disguised as success. Where do you see this? Like, how did this come up for you? I was a year into my sales career. I was in East Lansing at a bar after a sales meeting, after a team meeting. And I was with my manager. And then I was with a regional manager of a company that we represented. We were manufacturers reps. And those two had known each other for years because they'd worked together at other companies. And one of the guys looked at me, we're sitting across the table having lunch and a beer. And he said, Jeff, as you grow in this career, he said, I want you to pay attention. He said, there is a startling amount of mediocrity that disguises itself as successful. And I don't want you to be fooled by that. I don't want you to be put off by that. But just recognize if you can be better than mediocre, you're going to win. And I've never forgotten that. I've never forgotten that. There are people who don't execute well, but who don't execute consistently. There are details that get missed. There is actually a shocking lack of talent in a lot of sales verticals and, and industries and things like that. But there are so many people out there who know someone or the rep that gets the territory with the relationship with the top customer or whatever, you know, where it's a corporate relationship, not even a rep relationship, and they just get the benefit of that. There are so many of those things. It's easy to be discouraged by that. When you see all these people who are doing so well, and this gets back to our point about mastery and doing the work and being diligent about that, recognize what it takes to be really good and stop paying attention to the other stuff. But if you're going to pay attention to the other stuff, look for the mediocrity, you'll see it. And it'll make you not just that, not that you want to pull someone down so you can feel better, but you'll recognize that you stand among peers way sooner than you think you do. Yeah. Okay. That part's pretty interesting. Have you heard of Thinking in Bets, that book? I've heard of it. Annie Duke, right? Not read it. Okay. Really great book. There's this concept in there around like thinking and bets, like with your decision-making. Mm -hmm. So one of the examples that they use is just because you have a good result doesn't mean that it was a good decision leading up to that result. So a really silly example is I don't ever wear my seatbelt, but I've never gotten a car wreck right, and gotten hurt. So the result is, hey, I never got hurt, but that's obviously very poor decision-making. So I see this a lot with companies that have world-class products or services where the salespeople, they're very mediocre salespeople and they can get away with it because the customer's like, honestly, like this product's so good that I don't even want to use your competition. Yep. But what they end up experiencing is really, really low closing rates compared to like a closing rate that should be like 50% plus. Right. How do you know if you're mediocre? <laughs> you know, that would be kind of something to think about. What are you measuring against? <sighs> See, no, I never thought about the question that way. How do you know if you're mediocre? Chances are, if you're listening to this, you're better than mediocre. Let's reframe that because you may have an underdeveloped skill set. You may have less tenure than some other people. But if you are just executing at all, chances are you're at least mediocre, mm -hmm. right? So let's redefine that. The way I took it was, look, I was young. 
I was driven. I didn't even know what was in front of me. And it was just like, okay, what do we do? You got all this energy and you want to go. And there are a lot of young reps, inexperienced reps, champing at the bit, trying to just knock everything out of the park. And when you're judging yourself as a top performer, before you've really earned the right to be a top performer, you can feel as if you're less than. If you're doing the work, you're at least mediocre. And if you start to pay attention differently to those around you, you'll recognize they have strengths, they have weaknesses, they have a lot of holes in between. So from my standpoint, I took that experience as one to really temper my own emotions and how hard I was on myself. You know, and I remember a coach when I was running cross country in high school, I remember being under the weather or hurt or something like that. And he looked at me, he said, Jeff, 80% of you is better than most of the guys out there. So the team needs you to show up. I know you're not your best. We're going to be okay not being at your best. I think a lot of reps need to know that 80% of them is still going to be better than a lot of people out there. And 80% of them 15 years from now could be better than most people ever. But if that perspective is not framed for someone, they'll never pick it up on their own. It really seems like the theme here is showing up showing up consistently and like being very proactive and intentional about the things that you're doing. That's where discipline comes in. I have a good friend. And every time I say this, I'm reminded that it's been too long since I've talked to him, but he used a phrase in a slightly different context, but his phrase was must be present to win. Hmm. And if showing up every day and doing the work is a huge part of success. And a lot of people want to mail it in. And when I hear someone say adulting is hard, I'm turned on. It makes me want to unfollow them right? Like, it's like, no, adulting is adulting. That's what makes you an adult. Like, (laughs) do the work. Love it. All right. Last one, man. I can't wait for you to dig into this one. I don't think I'm even going to respond. I'm just going to set you, I'm going to light this fuse here and let you talk for the next seven minutes or so. What do you mean? I heard you say this. What do you mean when you say business problems are personal problems in disguise? Yes, this is a quote from Michael Port, who wrote a book called Book Yourself Solid. Great, great book, especially around the sales end of things. And if you think of like a common problem in sales ghosting, right, that's a very common problem. Mm -hmm. And like if we really break down, ghosting is a symptom usually of something else. And it could be a bunch of things. But one of those core things is around, hmm. So as a salesperson, you said that everything went really well and you went back to your manager and said, this is going to like high likelihood of closing here. We might be able to count this one, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then the prospect goes to you and you never hear from them again. There's a calibration that needs to happen between your level of like intimacy that you felt with that prospect and the level of intimacy that they felt with you. Yeah. That's the business part of it. Right. And what, what I think is that most people that don't realize the fact that they get ghosted a lot is that I'm not creating an environment where the prospect really feels like they can be honest with me. And if that's the case, check your personal life. Mm. How do the people that, well, it could be your loved ones, could be the people that are super close to you, but just your kind of friend circle. What might be an interesting test is to see how comfortable those people are with sharing intimate kind of stuff with you, being vulnerable around you. And you might ask yourself this question and realize that, oh, wow, like people actually don't share very many vulnerable things with me. And I don't feel like if I was doing something wrong or glaringly hurting my results in my job or whatever, that do I have people around me that would feel comfortable actually saying that to me? And if not, is there something that I am doing to prevent that? That's one example that I see a lot. It's like, what problems are you having in the sales process, the prospecting process? And how's that connected to your personal life? Because it's probably happening every single day in your personal life. Sales is one of those 
of course, it's a people profession, but it's one of those things where you, in order to be really good at it, you have to be willing to share some of yourself because it is a relationship business. So if you think about it in that respect, it's not out of the question to imagine that the way you relate to your customers is probably very similar to the way you relate to your friends, to your neighbors, to your colleagues, to the people at your church or whatever. And it's really just kind of a microcosm of those relationships. The big problems you have in your personal life will probably manifest themselves as smaller themselves as smaller problems in your professional life. It's really interesting to see you draw that connection, though, and because I've never heard it put that way before. I just think it makes a ton of sense. I mean, if you feel like you're less than in all your personal relationships, it's going to be really hard to find someone in a professional relationship who doesn't have a reason to know you, right? If you go to your family reunion and you feel like you're low person on the totem pole, you know, it's really hard to go out there and kill it in sales and tell people about how great or how world changing your product is because there's so much, it's like a microcosm. That's really interesting. So, I mean, where else do you think this shows up for people? So I'm going to ask you this. How many times have you done a sales call where you do really great discovery and the prospect says something like this? God, I'm almost embarrassed to admit this, but this X percentage or this thing that we're doing is like, I know it's really bad. How many times do people share that with you? Where they're almost like have a little bit of embarrassment around something they know they should be doing that's not going well. That's kind of how I know if I've done good discovery. Yeah. I don't think everyone actually hears that from their prospects. Okay. When you think about that, take that as a clue. For other people that I interact with, probably have things that they're insecure about that my solution can help with. Got it. But if I don't create an environment where they feel comfortable sharing that and that, hey, I'm on the same team as you, I'm not here to make fun of you because your conversion rates and your cold emails are really low. And there's little things that you can do to like really encourage that behavior. So instead of person says, hey, you know, yeah, we're not getting the type of open rates that we want. And like, oh, God, our team's setting about half the meetings. And instead of going into, oh, awesome. Well, that's actually something we can really help you out with, Jeff. Instead of doing that, it's like, oh man, that must be really frustrating. And I imagine you're probably looking at this like, hey, there isn't any more activity that my team could possibly do. So how are we going to hit our target? And they'd be like, yeah, yeah, you're totally right. That's making them feel heard. You can practice that same thing in your personal life. When someone brings issues to you and problems, it's like, oh man, like think about how that must feel for them and say, hey, thank you for sharing that with me. That, I, that probably wasn't easy to share. Right. And then you can kind of go into the next parts of it. There's so much correlation in that right there in your personal and your sales life. You know, I, I think salespeople have a hard time sometimes separating themselves from their professional lives, separating their personal lives from their professional lives. I think a lot of salespeople over-identify with what they do for a living. And I think a lot of people think that's a bad thing. But if you instead kind of turn it on its head and make that a strength of yours, right? And just being present enough to know what you're good at, know where you need to steer clear of, know what you need to steer toward. I think if you just are a little bit more mindful in your personal life, you can really turn that into your superpower in your professional life too. That was a fun one. The toxic positivity rant went in a different direction than I thought it would. So I appreciate you tuning in. I got something special for you. So if you like these long form episodes, I think what you're really gonna like is this one page guide I put together with our best bite-sized content. So I went and picked out all of our best stuff from podcasts, stuff from you know, LinkedIn that I post, other features and things like that that I've done. And it's stuff that takes five to 10 minutes to consume that you can use right away. If you go to blissfulprospecting.com slash Jason, you can go download it. It's a one pager, like I said, it's got probably a couple dozen tips in there, stuff that you can implement right away with your cold calls, cold emails, sequencing, 
If you need a little bit of motivation, stuff for objection handling, and sort of everything in between, make sure to check it out, blissfulprospecting.com slash Jason. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll talk to you soon.